Well, I wonder how many of you here this morning are fans of James Bond. I'm told that um, women want to be with him and men want to be him. I guess you'll have to let me know afterwards um, whether that's true for you or not. Um, Discretion's my middle name, so don't worry if you'll be embarrassed at all about that. But I guess when we think about James Bond, there is a lot to admire. I have to admit, I'm not embarrassed. I'm a big fan of, of, of James Bond. The travel, the gadgets. I, mean, I inherited gadget boy jeans from my dad. Watches with lasers, mobile phones that double up as a remote control for a BMW. It's, it's, it's brilliant. So gadgets, the charm, the wit. I mean, after impaling some inept um, henchman into a tree with a harpoon gun to turn, turn to him and say, stick around. It, it's genius. So you, you think of the travel, the gadgets, the wit, the cars. I don't know if you've seen the new uh, Casino Royale, but the Aston Martin in that is, is pretty special. But I'd hate to, to see his insurance premium, the, the rate in which he writes off those top sports cars. But you think of James Bond, you think of all those things, you think of the women as well. But perhaps probably the less said about that, the better. I'll move swiftly on. But there are aspects of Mr Bond's character that are less than savoury, shall we say. They're, he's been described as an emotional black hole. He's, he's a misogynist. He just treats women like his, his playthings. He just plays with them for a little while and chucks them when he's bored. He's morally bankrupt, some would say. He's, the end justifies the means for him. He, he'll, he'll kill someone without even blinking an eyelid. Well, whatever your feelings about Mr Bond, when it comes to, to his work and his, his mission, he gets results. Uh, thanks in part to his, I guess, skills and abilities, but also, it's, it's thanks largely due to the help of MI5 in the background. Um, the guys at LICC, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, um, Mark Green in particular, says of Mr Bond that he is always fully briefed, he's always fully trained, he's always fully resourced, and he's always fully supported when he goes out on his missions. And I wonder how the disciples were feeling as Jesus gives them this incredible mission. How briefed, how well briefed do you think they would have felt? How well trained, resourced, supported do you think they would have felt as they start to get their heads around this incredible mission that Jesus passes on to them? But this morning we're beginning the next stage in the journey that we've been on for the last, the last three months. Dr. Luke is again writing to Theophilus about Jesus, this, this revolutionary. And the book of Acts is, is Luke's second book. In fact, the, the two books together, Luke and Acts, would have fitted neatly onto, onto, onto one scroll, so I'm led to believe. So these verses, verses 1 to 5, would have been a nice kind of um, 
a kind of marker between the two to show actually this is a break. Uh, now we want to, to, to stage two of the journey. The event that, that Dr. Luke is writing about here are the pivot point of the whole of history. Jesus' death and, and resurrection. But one traces all the events leading up until that point. Book two takes the story on immediately from that event as, as things con- continue. The whole of history had been leading up until this point. The whole of creation, the Bible tells us, has been yearning for this pivotal point in history on the day when the Lord would bring about his salvation and deal with the curse from Genesis and deal with the problem of our sin and provide a way for humanity to restore their broken relationship with God. And we read at the start of of Luke's Gospel of his desire to put together an orderly account of all these things. And we read that he carefully investigated all all the different events surrounding this pivotal point in history. That he spoke to eyewitnesses, got their accounts, put them all together for Theophilus and for us. Just like any modern day documentary maker would do if they were doing something for Panorama or Newsnight or something. He carefully collected all his sources, put together an orderly account because the things that he was writing about are so huge. So we've spent the last few months looking at Luke's first book and like Theophilus must have been, we've been thinking to ourselves, what, what does all this mean? What does this mean for us today? How should we respond to these incredible things that Luke's telling us about. This morning, as we look at the start of the book of Acts, Luke's second book, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. And I want us to ask, first of all, what would this have meant for them, then, when Jesus said these words to them? And I think as, as, we, as we get our heads around that, we'll be able to draw out what it means for us here today on the brink of a new year in 21st century Oxford. So I want you to imagine that you were one of of those disciples that day on that hillside uh, listening to Jesus. Now you've been with Jesus and the other disciples now for, for over three years. You'd left everything to go and follow this man. Your nets, your boats, your livelihood, your, your comfort, your home. You left it all to follow this man. You heard him teach like no one else you've ever heard before with, with real authority and depth. You saw the sick healed before your eyes, the lame walk, the blind see, the leprous cleansed and restored. You saw evil spirits delivered out of people. You saw authority over nature. You saw violent storms calmed 
with a word. He'd even seen the dead raised back to life. Alongside that, you'd, you'd seen the hostility as well. You'd seen the jealousy, the hatred even, amongst some of the Jewish leaders. You'd seen how incessantly they were out to, to, to trap, accuse and bring down Jesus. You saw that divided opinions about him. And you heard the claims that he made about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. And you knew your Old Testament. You were waiting for for God's promised saviour. The country you loved and grew up in was occupied by, by foreign rule who were brutal and godless. And you were becoming increasingly convinced that this carpenter from Nazareth was far more than that. You saw him hailed as a king as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. As, as crowds of people flocked to him, waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna. You saw him um, sweating blood in a garden as he thought about the future. You saw him betrayed. You saw him arrested. You saw him tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. And when he needed you most, you were nowhere. You deserted him. Denied even knowing him. You saw the humiliation. You saw the pain and the torture. And you saw him die. All your hopes, your fears, your, your, your faith just disappeared as your world came tumbling down around you. And you turned into just crushing despair. How could this be? Wasn't he God's promised rescuer? How could I have deserted him? What happens now? I've left everything to follow him. But you saw, a few days later, that empty tomb. You heard the disciples talking as if they'd seen him and met him. And now here you are, on that hillside, seeing him with your own eyes, hearing him speak to you. It's him, you know it's him. He's different, but it's, it's him. There's a million things buzzing around your head. You've been on such an, an emotional roller coaster over the last few years. Highs and lows. All those things buzzing around. And so you ask him, is, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And his answer to you just blows your mind. 
Well, I guess if, if we think about that emotional roller coaster these disciples had been through, it's, it's easy to understand the, the confusion and, well, all the, all the things that would have been going on in their minds. But Jesus, to those disciples on that hillside, and to us, his disciples now, Jesus gives an extraordinary mission. The task of taking the message of him, of the the good news about all that he had done and said, not just to Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. And this morning we're going to look, we're going to focus on on verse 8 in particular this morning. And I want us to see three, three things, three brief things. We're going to see the power for the mission that Jesus promises, the central task of the mission, and the enormous scope of the mission. So verse 8, we're going to see the power for the mission, the central task of the mission, and the scope of the mission. So let me just read verse verse 7 and 8 again, just to remind us. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So first of all, Jesus talks about the the power for the mission that he's, he's given them. And he promises them that they will receive power. That the Holy Spirit will come on them. And I guess for some of the disciples there on that day, listening to Jesus, talking to him, that would have been hugely reassuring. Because things were by no means stable. Now Jesus had died, and and a few days after. And I guess as, as they saw how Jesus had been treated... I guess it wouldn't have filled them with too much confidence and hope as they thought about what they had to then do um, as Jesus passed the baton on to them. But Jesus promised them help. He promised them power for their mission. They don't have to do it in their own strength. It's, it's a huge task, that, that's true. But they're not on their own. At the same time, there there may have been some who were just buzzing. That their hearts burning within them as they see Jesus in front of them. Maybe they were there on the Emmaus Road. Maybe they were there on other times when Jesus appeared to them and just opened up the Old Testament and just showed them and light bulbs clicked. It all kind of came and it, it makes sense. There may have been some that were just yeah, so excited by that that they would have just loved it just, right, what are we waiting for? Let's go. But Jesus said to them to wait. That they were to, to wait in the city until they are given the Holy Spirit. Because if the gospel is 
is to be spread, if the church is to be built, it's always through the power of God's, God's Spirit. Well, I wonder which of these two extremes describes you or me individually. I wonder which of these two describes us as a church. Do we have no confidence or do we have too much confidence? Or whichever we feel, whichever side of of these we, we feel we relate to more, we, we all need to hear the same truth. God's gospel spreads by God's power. I just think about this for a moment. And this is, at, at this stage in, in history, Jesus gives this extraordinary task to these regular, ordinary disciples. They're, they're nothing special. They've got no structures in place to facilitate global mission. They've got no vast sums of of money, no finances. They've got no property. They've got no five-year strategic phased plans. They've got no shiny new kitchen. They've got no endless store of, of, of tracts and flashy multimedia that just blows up. So, it's, yeah, I mean, if, if you wanted to change the world, I guess a handful of, of fishermen would not, from Jerusalem would not be uh, you, too high up your, uh, your list of people to recruit to help you. On the face of it, this, this, the success of this mission that Jesus is giving to them is, is hanging by the weakest and most fragile of threats. But yet, the, the story of history, the, the history of the early church and the story of, of Acts shows us again and again and again that in apparent weakness and fragility, despite fervent op- opposition and persecution, that God works in powerful and extraordinary ways. And that actually when people stop trusting in God's power and start relying on their own that's when mission gets put on the back burner and the church begins to decline so the first thing Jesus wants to to say to them is that they will have power for this mission and it's his power, the power of of his Holy Spirit look at verse 5 with me as well. John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, John, all John could do on one level was make people wet. The Holy Spirit, when you're baptised with the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, uh, when, when he comes on Pentecost, as we'll see in, in chapter 2, your heart will be tra- changed. You'll have God's Spirit, God's power living in you, working through you. So that's what he wants to encourage them with, first of all, that that they will have God's power as they go about this mission. So secondly, he goes on to talk about what the central task of their mission will be. 
And it's simple, isn't it? You will be my witnesses. I used to work in a, in a mini supermarket type shop. And I had one very eventful summer um, whilst at university working, I was back home working in this shop. One manager was sacked for sexually assaulting a customer. Another manager was sacked shortly afterwards for stealing large sums of money from the tills and from the safe out the back and, and that kind of thing. And I remember being hauled into the staff room one day by two kind of very official looking security types from head office and they just grilled me basically to see what, what, what I had seen what I could tell them about what had happened um, what was my witness to, to all these things that were going on I basically had to testify to them what I had seen or heard in relation to the crimes that my two previous bosses have been charged with. And it, that's essentially what witnessing is all about. It's essentially a very simple thing that Jesus says to them, you will be my witnesses. The disciples were to, to simply go and tell what they had seen, what they had heard about Jesus, about who he is and, and what he'd come to do. I think sometimes we can make witnessing out to be something kind of scary and, and so, something that it's not. We, we over-spiritualise it sometimes. We think it's, it's just something that's for preachers or, or evangelists. It's just a job for the chosen few. And I think that kind of ties into wider misunderstandings we can have sometimes. It's easy for us to have a kind of spiritual hierarchy in our minds with you know, the overseas missionary right at the top of the list and you know, we're somewhere way down the bottom somewhere. But the truth of the Bible, again and again, we're told that actually every single Christian is a missionary. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're a missionary. You're a full-time Christian worker. Whatever job you're doing. And uh, I guess... The, the truth is, probably most of us in this room would spend more time interacting with, with non-Christians in a given week than, than Peter would, or Richard would, or Dave would. Every Christian is a missionary. All of us are uniquely placed by God in the specific situations where we find ourselves. And we can make witnessing out to be some kind of scary, huge, mammoth thing that we're not qualified enough to do anything about. But witnessing is just simply talking about what we know and have experienced about Jesus. If you're a Christian, you have a testimony and you can witness. Witnessing on one level is just simply having a conversation with someone. But importantly, witnessing in the Bible is it's more than just a conversation. It's a conversation that is backed up by a life lived with integrity. I guess 50 years ago, truth 
was what was all important to people in society. That's what mattered, whether something was, was right or not. Today, things have changed. Now, it's not so much whether it's right or not, it's whether it makes a difference or not. Whether it works, whether it's, it's real, does it make a difference in your life? There's a, there's a famous Billy Graham quote, which goes like this. He said on one occasion that the biggest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And that's very true. Just before Christmas, I was, I was out on Cowley Road with the guys I play football with. And uh, we were just in the pub chatting. And one of the guys um, I, was, I was chatting to actually grew up in a church. Right, all his childhood, teenage years, grew up in a church. But just rejected everything to do with church because the, the, the people in the church he grew up with just didn't live out at all what they said they believed in. And so that had totally turned him away from Christianity. There's also a reminder of, of a, a good friend of mine from university. He's a bit of a character, really. I guess he's a bit socially awkward, some would say. Um, perhaps even mildly autistic. But um, he's a lovely Christian guy. Uh, really loves the Lord and in his first year he, he was living in halls with um, five other guys one of the guys in the, in the halls was in the university rugby team a guy called Rich and drove a motorbike and, <coughs> and um, joined in with the others kind of giving my mate a bit of a hard time at, at, the, at the start of, of things but just over time became increasingly impressed by the way that my, my mate lived, lived out his life. He saw that he had a real integrity about him. He saw that there's actually something different about him. And so my friend just faithfully witnessed to, to Rich over the coming months. I mean, he couldn't answer all his questions with kind of eloquent, cohesive, well-thought-out arguments. But he could simply give the reason for the hope that he had. And that combined with his lifestyle of real integrity and the way that Russell just so faithfully prayed for Rich and with us and, and I'm sure by himself, uh, at, the, at the mission that, that, that came up later that year Rich um, became a Christian and that's, that's exactly what Jesus has in mind when he talks about his disciples going out to, to, to witness that's what witness is all about so Jesus talks about the, the power for the mission the central task of the mission, being about witnessing. And then finally he talks about the scope of the mission. Well, in 1946, in a, 
kind of bombed out town in Japan in a, in a very small, dilapidated warehouse. A couple of guys, a couple of businessmen, got together and decided that they were going to start a company which they were going to call Sony. And uh, I'm led to believe that as they were setting up this company, their vision for setting up this company was that they wanted to change the way the world thought about Japanese electronic goods. What a vision for these, you know, just a handful of guys in some kind of dilapidated garage in a bombed out city starting off this company together. That's what they want to do. Change the way the world thinks about electronic goods. (coughs) Incredible vision. The, the, the vision Jesus has here as he passes on this commission, this great commission, this mission to his disciples is even bigger than those Japanese businessmen as they started up Sony. Just think, this would have blown the minds of these disciples as they were there. Not just you will be my witnesses in this community in which you're placed, not just this region, not just this country even, but to the ends of the earth, you will be my witnesses. Are you kidding? Do you really mean us? I'm sure they would have asked those questions as as they heard Jesus say these words. It's just so far beyond what they could have even imagined. But throughout the Bible... God's heart is always global. His plans have always been for, for all people around the world to be able to come and worship him. Uh, yeah, the, the temple even was... God ordained that the, the temple when it was set up would have outer courts a certain part of the outer courts of the temple were for the Gentiles to come so they could see what happened in the temple and so they could learn about what it would mean for them to become part of the people of God. But when Jesus was around in the temple, that part of the the temple that was, was set aside, the space that was specifically for the Gentiles to to come and to learn and to be part of the people of God had been turned into a marketplace where people could just make a profit for selling um, sacrificial animals. And I wonder if there's any ways in which the church today has done a similar kind of thing. I wonder if we are guilty of doing that kind of thing as well. The scope of the mission that Jesus gives to these disciples would have pushed them far beyond their comfort zones and their imagination. And our tendency as as human beings is always to do things on our own terms, in our own ways. But here, Jesus commands us Not to wait around and hope people come in, but he tells us to to go into our community, 
into East Oxford, into our workplaces, into our neighbours' homes, into the streets in which we live, and to witness to Jesus by what we say and what we do. Well, I wonder, what, what does it mean for us as God's people here in this church, this community, what does it mean for us to go into East Oxford? What does it mean for you personally? But what about wider than that? What does it mean for us to, to go throughout Oxfordshire? Are there villages nearby where we can go and help, where we can go with the message of, of Jesus? Do we know what's happening in, in different churches around our city? Do we know what's happening in some of the different areas of Oxfordshire? Are we praying for those different churches, those different bits in our region? What about our country? There's a massive need for the Gospel. Probably upwards of 50 million people in this country today who don't know Jesus. We have the highest teenage pregnancy rate in Europe, the highest rate of youth crime, the, highest, the third highest rate of divorce. We work more hours per week than any other EU country. We have a massive drugs problem and a huge binge drinking problem. More than a quarter of adults in the UK are taking antidepressants. I don't say that to, to make any comments about the use of antidepressants, but merely to say as, as a national trend that that is of concern. There's a huge need in our country. What does it mean for us individually, as a church, to go and witness to Jesus? Or our world? It's estimated that there are 420,000 Christians involved in transcultural overseas missionary work. 420,000 um, overseas missionaries, that's, that's the approximate. Um, and they also reckon that um, global mission has an income now of around about 12 million US dollars. So that's that's an incredible testimony to God's grace. As we see, see from just these, the bunch of disciples here with nothing to where we've got to today. To think of yeah, just God's grace in, in building his church. It's, it's awesome. But let's not delude ourselves into thinking the task is, is finished when two-thirds of the world are, are living on less than six dollars a week and knowing nothing of, of the good news of Jesus. Well, it's, it's, it's clear that the needs in the world in which we live, even the community that we live, are, are vast, are huge. And it's easy to become overwhelmed as we think about those, those things. But we need to remember what Jesus says here. 
that actually Jesus builds his church. He gives us the power to witness for him wherever we are. So this morning, on the start of of a new year, we need to, to think, are we going? What does it mean for us to, to go out into our community, our country, our world? What is it that God is calling us to do? Well, James Bond was fully briefed, fully trained, fully resourced and fully supported. How about you? How do you feel? Do you feel fully supported and briefed and trained and resourced? What is it that that you need? As a church, as God's people, how are we equipping you in the task of, of witnessing at work or at home? If there are specific things that, that you, you need from us, then do, do talk to us. Talk to, to Peter, talk to the evangelism team and tell us what you need in order to, to make you better equipped, better resourced and trained and resourced and supported to go about witnessing where you are. Jesus commands us to go and not just hang around looking up in the sky intently like these disciples got caught doing 